Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. If you've ever wondered how you can use negotiation tactics to build better relationships in your life and how you can eliminate the distance that sometimes comes between what we intend to do as leaders and the actual impact we're having, then you've come to the right place because our guest today is the perfect person to address these issues. Speaking of which, our guest today is the CEO of an organization called Progressing Minds. She has 23 years of practical business experience across diverse sectors, including government, NGOs, healthcare, and oil and gas. She's held executive leadership positions at international corporations in competence and learning roles and leadership development. She holds a doctorate in psychology from the University of Surrey and has been trained as an expert negotiator from Harvard Law School. Her first book, The Leadership Pin code unlocking the key to willing and winning relationships has been recognized by forbes and is already a bestseller here is dr nasheter dow solheim nasheter welcome to the podcast thank you joshua great to be here so i like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives so you ready for this i'm ready what is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? I'd like to say the phrase leadership is a privilege. I'm not actually sure where that comes from or whether I've made it up myself. Somebody will correct me on that. But it's a phrase that I use both with my clients and resonates for me. And the idea really behind it is that if you treat being a leader or leadership as a privilege, it really affects the attitude that you have towards the role that you have. I think it encourages humility. It encourages a more servant approach to leadership. How can I help other people? Rather than having a sense of entitlement or perhaps, let's say, even a sense of uh, arrogance around, well, I'm a leader and therefore I have a, have a mandate. So I like the idea of leadership being a privilege, really encouraging people to be humble. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Curious, empathic, and visionary. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? So I wanted to start with, I'm going to cheat a little here, Joshua. I was going to start with, how can I help you? And I hear a lot of people using that as a great way of describing what servant leadership should be. How can I help others? But I want to change the language a little bit. I'm being the psychologist here and I get caught up in language, <laughs> but I think it's very powerful. So what I would like leaders to have them ask themselves is, what do you need from me to help you? And I think it changes the agenda from what's in my head that I think you need from I'm going to actually go out and ask you, what do you need from me to help you? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? So I have over, over the years of working with leaders probably referenced a few different books where I felt it would help them with their specific leadership challenges, you know, classic leadership texts. 
But I'm going to step away from that, and I have done more lately, and encouraged leaders to read books that open and broaden their perspective and their mind. And my favorite all-time book that's probably had the most lasting impact on me is The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield, because that really speaks to me about having a mindset that is open and curious about other people, really thinking about slowing down and seeing every encounter that you have as an opportunity to build a relationship and to see where it takes you. I love the curiosity that he communicates in the way he describes how we need to relate to other people. I think leaders could do really well for themselves and learn a lot from being more open and curious towards other people. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week that would help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Now, before the coronavirus, Joshua, I would have said something else. Um, I would have been talking about the physical seating arrangement in a room when you go in to have a dialogue with one of your employees or stakeholders. That's certainly one of the things I get most feedback on that is useful when I'm coaching. But given that we're all in virtual scenarios now, we're probably sitting in home offices and linking up on PCs with our our counterparts, then I think what I, the one thing I'd like to have people do this week is think about how you can show empathy in a virtual context. So how can you communicate that through your facial expressions and your body language and tone of voice when you're speaking to people over the net? And I usually don't like to deviate from these questions, but what would be some recommendations that you would give to people so that they can do that most effectively? So I immediately ask people to do a little pre-recording of themselves just to see themselves on video. Not many people have actually seen themselves in this role as a leader, advising other people or, or talking to members of their team in that context. So record yourself and have a look at how you're communicating, how you're coming across towards other people. Are there, for example, mannerisms in your hands or your facial expressions that are helpful and which ones are not. So make sure there's good eye contact with the camera, that you're not looking down at pieces of paper, for example. Don't be looking at your phone while you're talking into the video. Make sure you have an animated tone of voice so you sound interested and engaged. And be very mindful that you are probably showing only your shoulders and your head. So if you are doing anything with your hands, make sure that they are visible if it's necessary and certainly move them out the way if they're going to be distracting. And that leads us to our final question, which we call our arbitrary but insightful question. And that is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I think I'm going to go straight into why not. But there are two parts of why not for me. There is the why not, which is why shouldn't we do this? This is a great idea. Don't, you know, let's be open. Let's take risks. Let's be curious about what this might lead to looking for opportunities. But the other part of why not in some cases can be useful if you're pressure testing an idea that you've got and you want to check, well, are there any reasons why we shouldn't do this? Why this is not a good idea? But I'm really more on the why not. Let's open up. Let's look for opportunities. Let's take risks. Nashatur, we are here today to talk about your new book, The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. And I've just found out that this is one of eight books that Forbes has recommended that will make you reconsider how to handle your relationships. So before we get into the book and really what it's focused on, how does it feel to be recognized by Forbes like this? I'm still in shock, actually, Joshua, if I can be honest. Um, I wrote the book really for my clients. I've worked as a leader myself and I now coach leaders and the book was really about helping them in a very practical way with the challenges they face every day based on my own experiences. So when I found out from the publishers that it had been picked up by Forbes and recommended, I was blown away. I mean, I hold Forbes in great regard. I have 
I follow them, I read their articles, I listen to their podcasts, and I was just, I guess, very humbled to find out that I am on one of the lists where they are actually recommending something I've written, something that I've created myself. So hugely grateful and it's it's exciting. We're going to talk about some of the different parts of this book as the interview progresses, but could you give us a broad overview of what the Leadership Pin Code is all about? So the book is really about crystallizing the essence of what I think leaders would find most helpful in their everyday leadership. And what I've observed, both working as a leader and coaching leaders, is that leaders struggle mostly with how they can have the impact that they want to have. And often they're struggling with this gap, as I call it, between what they intend to do and the impact that they're having. And you'll often hear people saying, you know, I don't feel they understood what I meant. I feel that they were confused. Perhaps I intended to be engaging or inspiring, but I don't think I had, that That was not how it was experienced. And so what I wanted to do was really crystallize, well, what is that about? And it's about having effective persuasion, influence, and the ability to negotiate with people. So I call that PIN. And so in the book, I describe what are those skills? How can we make sure that we take the luck out of how we engage other people in a positive way? And I break down what I mean by persuasion what I mean by influence and what I mean by negotiation. But really, it boils down to how can I get out of my head as a leader and into the head of other people so that I understand what they need from me, what motivates them, what engages them, and how I can, in a way, find the hook in the other person that is going to help them want to do what I need them to do, but also find the win-win. There's something in it for both parties. And as I said before, there's a ton of literature out there that helps leaders in many ways to understand what they need to do. But I'm not sure how much of that literature really speaks to creating a framework that makes it easy for them to know how to do it in everyday encounters. So I decided to create a method that's really three keys. And the three comes from my experience as a neuropsychologist. I learned in working with people with brain injuries, people with uh, brain disease, that when we learn, humans tend to learn best when they learn in chunks of information. And neuroscience will tell us that we tend to remember information that's chunked in threes or fours, typically threes. And you'll see that around you in in the natural environment. If you look at marketing slogans, for example, it's often three bullet points or three three words in a phrase. And it's because they've understood that. They've understood that you know people remember things in threes. And we know that with telephone numbers too. We tend to chunk telephone numbers when we're remembering them into threes or fours. So as a neuropsychologist, I wanted really to take that knowledge. And if I was going to create a framework that was going to help leaders remember how to use their influence skills effectively, I really knew it needed to be in three parts. So I worked on trying to understand what these skills were that I wanted leaders to use, and then found that really they fell into these three categories of approach, behavior, and conversation, ABC, where approach is how you prepare for the kind of conversations or encounters you want to have, your advanced preparation, if you like. So what do you need to know about other people? What kind of research do you need to do? Maybe you need to figure out what their interests are in having the conversation with you, what motivates them, what their concerns or priorities are. So do your homework. That's your A for advanced preparation. And then the B is, well, what's going on with your body language? And how is what you're doing physically, how you appear and how you present to other people, how is that either enabling 
your communication or getting in the way of your communication. So other things that you're doing that perhaps people find positive and engaging, maybe you're very smiley, you have very open body language, you use a tone of voice that's engaging, or perhaps there are mannerisms that you have you're not aware of that get in that way. So some people perhaps overuse their arms or they frown when they speak or they speak through closed eyes. So your B for body language is really think about how am I going to get my message across in a way using my physical demeanor that adds to my message. And the other part of B is the behavior of the room. And what I mean by that is I don't know how much time leaders really think about where they're going to have the conversations and how they can optimize their physical surroundings to make sure that that conversation is a collaborative and, let's say, constructive one. So where do I put the chairs in the room? Um, You can make it very formal by sitting directly opposite each other with a big table between you and having very direct eye contact. That's not often very comfortable if you're trying to have a collaborative conversation or if, for example, you're trying to create a comfortable arena where you might have to give challenging feedback. So where you put your chairs, whether you use a PowerPoint presentation, whether you decide to stand or sit or go for a walk while you're having this conversation or all what I call the room behavior. So how can I use my physical environment to help me with the influence I want to have? And the third part in conversation, C, That really refers to, well, what am I going to say and how am I going to say it? So what questions do I ask? Do I go first? Does the other person go first? Do I need to have my curious hat on? Do I need to be thinking about what responses I give so that when I have this conversation or this encounter, I'm sure that my intention meets my impact in the best possible way, both through what I've prepared, my body language, the room, And also then what I say. So the book is really about the skills of persuasion, influence and negotiation put into a very practical framework of ABC, your approach, your behavior and your conversation. One of the things that you start off your book with are the dysfunctional beliefs for leaders to avoid. Could you expand on that a little bit as well? When I was writing the book, I gave quite a lot of thought to my experiences of working both as a leader myself and then with the leaders that I now coach and advise. And the kind of beliefs that I found tended to get in the way of being what I call an engaged leader. Because in the book, I talk about two ends of a continuum. Um, At the one end of a continuum, entitled leaders, as I call them. And they're really the leaders who tend to wear their, their title and their experience and their education, and perhaps even their associations as a badge of honor. And it often brings out beliefs like, you know, well, I've done this for 30 years, so I don't need anybody telling me what to do and I don't need to learn anything new or, you know, I've been to the right business school and done the right training. So, you know, I know I'm a great leader because I've read the right books. So I was picking up these, what I call dysfunctional beliefs as I was going along both in my own work and in my experience of working in these business environments and thinking, I'm not sure that those beliefs are helping you to be open and curious and more like what I call the engaged leader, which is at the other end of the spectrum, where leaders who are really effective are humble to the learning journey. They're curious about what they don't know. They are much more focused on what do I need to learn in this role now that is different to any other role I've had before? What is different about these people that I'm leading and connecting with that I haven't had the experience of before? 
So the difference for me between the entitled leader and the engaged leader is really the openness to learning and being humble to the fact that you may not know everything and you're on a learn, constant learning journey. And so I describe those eight dysfunctional beliefs for that reason, because they are incredibly common. And I think we've all had one or two of those beliefs at some point in our lives, uh, whether it's, well, now that I've done that before, it means I know how to do it going forward. Forgetting perhaps that, you know, every situation that's coming up is going to be new to us, right? So we don't know how to handle it until we get there, but we can bring our learning with us. But we should stay humble to the fact that it doesn't mean we're going to be 100% successful. And we may learn something new anyway. So I wanted to capture those so that people could really use it as a way of assessing where are they on that spectrum? How engaged are they in different scenarios or situations or dialogues? And then they can use that as a way of moving the needle. If they find themselves having a belief that really is very entitled, they can have a look at the situation and think, well, how can I use the ABC to move myself more towards the engaged end of the spectrum? What can I do to be more open and curious and learning? So, Nashatar, one of the things that you've talked about is the benefit of your understanding as a neuropsychologist. One of the things we read in your bio is that you're also trained as an expert negotiator from Harvard Law School. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that's helped your thinking as a leader, especially as it relates to this book? We know from the PIN code that the N is for negotiation. Could you talk a little bit about how your understanding of negotiation has helped you in leadership and also how it's played a role in the formation of this book? I trained as a forensic clinical psychologist very early in my career. And one of the things I learned as a forensic psychologist was how to phrase questions, how to steer dialogues to help patients we called them patients. They were offenders who had psychiatric problems, were locked up for very serious crimes, and at the same time had mental health problems. How to engage them in a trustful dialogue where we could have them share information that was important for us to know about assessing their risk, the risk of committing another offence, the risk of them becoming ill again, and perhaps that leading to them committing another offence. So that training was very important because we learned how to use persuasion techniques, questions that help people open up, questions that help build rapport and trust, and how to have them really work with us on helping them to get better, but also to give us information that would help us prevent some of those terrible situations occurring again in the future, whether it was directly with them or being able to understand factors in society or in their earlier experiences that we could then really try and moderate if we were able to change what happens for people in their early experiences. So as part of that training as a forensic psychologist, I was exposed to seeing people working with negotiation skills. And at that time, it was negotiation in the context of hostage negotiations. And so what I mean by that is we had people who were trained in the hospital to work as negotiators in the very unlikely scenario, but we had to make sure that we were prepared in case it happened, of a patient taking another patient hostage or one of the members of staff hostage. So remember, this is an environment of maximum security, so very dangerous offenders who clearly were capable of perhaps taking somebody hostage if they became either very unwell or very, very angry. So as I watched the negotiators doing their training and trying to understand how they managed to persuade and influence in those situations 
to resolve those very difficult scenarios. I saw that a lot of the techniques that they were using were techniques that I used myself with my patients, but I also saw we use in everyday life. And I later went to work with the Ministry of Defence and worked with military personnel returning from war zones and peacekeeping engagements and very challenging situations, really helping them to adjust to coming back to normal life. And again, using the same skills of persuasion and influence in really helping them to open up, trust us with their their stories and help them to really reintegrate into, into normal life. And when negotiation came into it, to answer your question, was I looked really at, well, what's in it for them and what's in it for us when we're trying to ask people to work with us to whether it's to share information, whether it's to cooperate in terms of working together to move towards a different way of being in the future. And I was very aware that those skills were perhaps not as complicated. It's not as much like rocket science as perhaps TV would have us believe it is when we see these great shows and we see these great actors, you know, going into very complicated situations, doing great negotiation dialogues, that actually it's really about getting out of your head and getting into the head of somebody else and figuring out, well, what is it they really want out of this? And how can I meet their needs whilst also meeting mine for the information I need. So what's the win-win? And really negotiation is about creating a win-win. So I really feel there's a common thread through all the work that I've done, whether it's been as a psychologist working with offenders, whether it was as a psychologist working with military personnel. And certainly then when I moved into business and was working with leaders, I could see that, well, okay, these scenarios that the leaders I'm working with the ones that they're dealing with, they're maybe not as challenging as peacekeeping engagements or working in war zones, and certainly not in terms of forensic settings, but they are dealing with the same issues in people, which is people who are maybe difficult or resistant to change, perhaps people who they need to try and motivate or persuade to follow them on a, on a big new direction. So I felt that the common thread really was these skills if we could demystify them and translate them into a very practical toolkit, are skills that leaders would really benefit from using in their everyday work with their employees, with their stakeholders, with customers. So negotiation really being the win-win in every dialogue that they have. It's interesting to hear how you've been using this PIN approach, this persuade, influence, negotiate approach for years. You mentioned earlier that this book originally was, at least in your mind, a book for clients. And you, as we've read in your bio, are CEO of your business called Progressing Minds. Could you talk a little bit about the work that you do there and how the PIN code works into that? So Progressing Minds is really the consulting arm of what I do in the leadership pin code today. So I have built Progressing Minds over a number of years, and really it's been around me coaching and advising leaders through the experiences I've had myself and the method that I've developed, which now is in the book. And working with, it's mostly senior leaders and executives. And the reason for that is twofold. Firstly, it's that group of leaders that I keep coming across that perhaps get the least feedback in their careers as they get more and more 
let's say, senior and experienced and towards the top of their ladders, it can be quite lonely at the top for them. They'll probably not have as many people willing or feeling courageous enough to give them feedback about whether their impact, their influence is effective or if there are things that they're doing that is getting in the way. They may have trusted advisors who are objective that they listen to. But in the main, I think senior leaders and executives tend to have less opportunity for feedback on what they could really do to be even more effective. In some cases, it may be that they have the opportunity, but they're not open to taking it. They really feel they've arrived like the entitled leader. You know, I'm at the top. I am a CEO. So what do I need to learn? I know everything I need to know and I'm here. So I really wanted to have an opportunity to work with people in a very practical way. The second part is I've, I've worked as an executive leader myself. So I know those arenas. I know how lonely it can be. I also know how challenging it can be. And that really what your task is when you're at the top of an organization is about communicating the message, is about steering and setting direction, setting goals and priorities, helping people to manage big changes or small changes, but you're really there to help and support and to serve. And I'm not sure that I always felt that that was really well understood in some of these groups of leaders at that level that I met so that they would often get very operational. They might jump in and get into details, might be seen as interfering or controlling or micromanaging by their teams. And what I wanted to do was really work directly myself with those leaders and say, hey, here's some very simple ways of translating all that great knowledge and experience that you have. You're incredibly competent. You've got a wealth of experience behind you. And perhaps it's just these three small things that if you were to do these, you'd really be able to have more effect and have more impact. So Progressing Minds really came out of how can I work with leaders in all kinds of industries, but senior leaders who perhaps are a bit protected and isolated from getting this kind of coaching and feedback. And from maybe it's a little bit easier to take this kind of coaching from somebody who's also sat in your seat and sees it from your side of the table. Before we finish up today, what is a final thought you would like to leave listeners with, whether it's something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, or whether it's something you'd like to reiterate from our conversation that we've had already? So what I'd really like to have people take away from this particular conversation, Joshua, is that it really is as simple as ABC. And even if you don't use all the ideas in the book, not even half of them, maybe just one out of each of those chapters on your being prepared, your approach, checking your behavior, where you're going to have the conversation or what you're going to say, that just practice, give it a go, try it out. It's really not rocket science. It's very doable. But give it a go. And I think you'll be just 1% better than if you hadn't tried your ABC. So I really hope people will see it as something that is doable, it's practical, and it's simple to use. Well, if people have liked what they've heard today, where can people go to learn more about you and your work and especially your new book, The Leadership Pin Code? Probably the best place to find me where I'm pretty active is on LinkedIn. So if they put in Nashita Dowsalheim and they'll find my page on LinkedIn, they can contact me there. My email is there. The other place you can find me is, of course, on our website on progressingminds.com, and you can fill in the contact form and I'll get straight back to you. I'm also on Facebook, so feel free to private message me there, and I usually get back to everybody pretty quickly. Great. Well, Nashader, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks for having me.
So there you have it. Be sure to check out Nostrader's book, The Leadership Pin Code, if you'd like to learn more about what she shared today. Also, you can find more ways to contact her and interact with her at the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com slash 075. Now, let's go ahead and go to today's three key takeaways. The first one is simple, but I think it's really good for reflection as leaders. Notice the tension between your intention and your impact as a leader. Notice the tension between what you intend and the actual impact that you're having as a leader because there might be a difference between the two of those. And the second one relates to that. If there is a tension between your intention and your impact, then use the three elements of the PIN code, persuasion, influence, and negotiation. These three can help you to eliminate the tension that exists. And the final takeaway is this. If you do want to ramp up your impact, get a better handle on the perspective of others by being aware of the ABCs, your approach, your behavior, and how you're conducting your conversations. Now, be sure to join us for our second episode later this week because we're going to be talking about how to make sure that you get star performers for your organization, whether or not you're actually in a place where you're hiring for your organization. At some point in the future, you're going to have to figure out, is this person in front of me the right person for my team? And being aware of what makes a star performer will help you make better decisions when the time comes. And this episode might just give you some insight on how you can make sure that you yourself are one of those star performers. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.